I still remember uh, asking Chuck and Lori, who were in that video. That Chuck and Lori are my aunt and uncle. And uh, Brad is the man, again, as Jen and I were praying about, who, who's going to stand on the platform with us? Who's going to be my best man? And the requirement was just, who reminds us most of Jesus? And once we kind of had that criteria, it was a really easy choice. And I pray that you get to meet Bradford someday. Um, again, he's still one of my dearest friends. I saw him a couple weeks ago because he is the living proof of loving God. Just his spirit, you can hear it in his voice. And, and it's just this incredible reality. And you heard Chuck say it, that early on in their life, there were people that kind of counted Brad out. And so I remember sitting down. I lived with them one summer. I remember sleeping in bunk beds with Brad um, the summer in college. And, and when I came back a couple years later and said, hey, I'm getting married, and I'd like to ask your son if he would be the best man at our wedding. And they just welled up in tears. Because so often we look at, at our situations and our circumstances, and I think we regularly think, well, that's a, a setback, but we believe at Vintage it's really a set what? I mean, that really comes from people like Chuck and Lori. That, that there's no thing in life that's an obstacle, it's really an, an, an opportunity. And Chuck and Lori lived that so graciously and faithfully, and I think there's times we can look at our life and say, well, we've been cast aside or pushed aside, look at the circumstances we've been given, and our heartbreaks make no mistake when Brayden, our oldest son, was diagnosed with cancer, they were one of the first couples that we called. Because they know what it's like to get that news, and yet what I saw in them was not someone that stepped back or that stepped out, because doesn't that happen sometimes when things go wrong, quote-unquote? We look at our life and we say, why me, or how did this happen, or man, I hate God, or whatever it might be. And what I saw in Chuck and Lori was people that actually stepped up. They stepped into the heartbreak. It's not that our heart doesn't break. You guys do recognize we live in a fallen, broken, jacked up world, right? And our lives at time intersect in a reality of this broken world that, that things aren't fair, and it's not right, and it's ugly, and it's painful, but those are invitations, I believe, from God to step in. And that's what Chuck and Lori did. Two weeks ago, I was down, and, and the fruit of all of this, I was down, I told you guys, I was at my uncle's funeral. It was Chuck's funeral two weeks ago. And, and to think about this reality, and as I walked onto campus, there were 20 challenger players that Chuck had invested in for over 20 years wearing Dodger jerseys. You will never hear me positively talk about the Dodgers except for in this context, because it was amazing. To get to meet these guys, and Brad walked me around and introduced me to all of his teammates and all of his friends and people that were family, and Chuck left this world, but honestly, it was the best thing I've ever been a part of, because he's more alive today than he's ever been. Because death does not defeat us, does it? No, de death is a gateway to glory. That's why Jesus says that, that he is greater than our heartbreak. He's greater than our, our broken world. He says this in Matthew. Do not fear those who kill the body, but they can't kill the soul. Remember, Paul says, greater is he that is in me. He says, I would rather live for Christ, and if I die, it will be what? Gain. That's a gateway to glory. He says, rather, don't fear that. Jesus says, who can destroy both the body and the soul in hell? Fear him. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny, and not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs on your head are numbered. So fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. And so our theme today is that God is greater than our heartbreak. That there are things in our life, there are circumstances that are outside of our control. There's diagnoses and realities that we must look at and say, God, you're greater than this. And instead of running away, I believe that we must run towards. Instead of going backwards, we must step up. And that's what Chuck and Lori did. And that's my prayer for all of us as a church, that we would recognize that God is greater than our heartbreak. That, that given as we get ready for Christmas, Christmas we're going to say words like Emmanuel, which means what? God is. See, God doesn't run away from our heartbreak. What does he do? He runs towards us. In fact, he who knew no sin became our sin. He entered into the mess of our world. 
that really started from the garden. He created a perfect, beautiful garden, and yet we didn't trust him or treasure him. And that creates tears and fears and death, but Jesus is greater than even that. Here's my summary statement for today. We're going to be in the book of Nehemiah. Again, you guys have been amazing. We've covered two books in the last three weeks. I mean, you guys are on fire. Now we're going to slow way down. So we're going to go a little slower through Nehemiah. We'll be in this book all the way till the new building opens up. So two weeks ago, we, were, we finished Ezra in two weeks. Last week was Zechariah. This week is Nehemiah chapter one. Here's my summary. God's heart breaks as our hearts break. And Nehemiah's heart breaks for the stalled progress of Jerusalem's restoration. Nehemiah sees what's going on in the world and his heart breaks and his heart is moved by the glory of God that it would be on display. So he repents and he prays in desperation for restoration for the people. And then he does this, because sometimes, again, we can pray and we can say, God, look at this. But what does Nehemiah? He actually does something. He steps. He steps into God's invitation, because that's really what Chuck and Lori received when Brad was born. He received an invitation to love and to cherish this child. And that's what they did so faithfully and continue to do, greater than a heartbreak. If you have your Bibles, Nehemiah chapter 1, following with me, starting in verse 1. Here's what we see. These are the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year that I was in Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brothers, he came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped. These are the 42K, the exiles, concerning them in Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exiles in great trouble and shame, and the wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. And I said, Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, would your ear be attentive and would your eyes be open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father have sinned against you. We have acted very corruptly against you. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments to do them, though you're outcast from the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and will bring them back to the place I have chosen you to make my name dwell there. That's Jerusalem, verse 10. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed. By your great power, by your strong hand, O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and let the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Would you pray with me? Father, we ask that our heart would break for what breaks yours. We ask that we would see that nothing is outside of your purview or your plan for your glory and for our good. We praise you, Jesus, that you who knew no sin came into our sinful world to show us a better way, a way to fully trust and to treasure you as king. And so would you speak to us, Spirit, oh, open our hearts and our ears and our eyes to see you, to see what you're doing and to step in, not to step out. For your glory, we pray these things and for the good of your name's sake and the people that don't yet know you, would you speak? And everybody said, amen. So where have we been? Maybe you've been gone the last couple of weeks. Maybe you, you just joined us. You're a guest today. Maybe you were here the last three weeks and you're still like, I don't have a clue where we are. Here's where we are. Here's where we've been. Again, we're coming out of, go all the way back to the beginning. In the beginning was the year what? The beginning. 
Okay, so that was the beginning. I, I don't know for sure what year that was. And these are kind of round numbers because they give us handholds to remember where we've been. I, I've got some guys that I trust that will argue that Noah was 3,500 and some that they say he's 2,500, so I picked 3,000, right? So this is BCE. So Noah happened after the flood, right? We get to, to the Tower of Babel shortly after that. Abraham shows up in 2100. Father Abraham had many sons, and through that, God births a nation. And so through Father Abraham, we see that. Moses is about five, 600 years later. Moses was the leader of the first revolution out of exile. Where was the first exile? Anybody remember? Egypt. So they're stuck in captivity in Egypt. Why are they stuck in captivity? We, we say it this way. When you lose your why, you lose your way. The Israelites lost their why. They lost. We often use this stool as a metaphor for the throne of our hearts, that each inside every one of our hearts, there's a seat, and it's got vacancy for one. The problem is that seat was designed by God, it was created for God, and it's his seat, but in sin, we not got off the throne of our heart, we take that seat. That's the definition of losing your why. We were created to be in relationship with him, but from the garden until today, we continue to try to take back the seat that's rightfully God's. And so they're in exile because they lost their why, they lost their way, and God told them, if you don't trust me, you'll be sent away, and he's a truth teller. And so they did. Shortly after that, Moses leads them out. We, 500 years later, we get to, to King David. They wanted a king, and so God gave him a king, but God said, you don't need a king. Why? Because I'm your king. Because you don't need what everyone else has. You need me. And yet we've seen this history. How good were the Israelites at being faithful to God? Very poor. And yet that's what we see regularly. And yet how good is God at being faithful in spite of us? That's good news, church. That he faithfully pursues us even though we run away from him. And then we got to, to the 580s and that's when we finally see God rescue and redeem the people out. After 70 years, he brings them back to Jerusalem. Zerubbabel was the first failed leader that we read about. That was three weeks ago. Remember Zerubbabel? He came and he restored the temple. And everyone's like, this is going to be awesome. Once we have a place of worship, then it's going to be great. But how good was it? It wasn't very good, remember? The temple's built and all the elders from Solomon's temple, they were mourning. Why? Because you can have a place of God, but that's not the big idea. You really want the presence of God. Remember Moses when he's trying to walk into the promised land and God's like, go ahead and go. I don't even care anymore. You just go to the promised land. I'm just not going with you. And what does Moses say? Anybody remember? He says, if you're not going, I don't want to be there. It's your presence that matters most, not your place. It's the presence of God. And so Zerubbabel builds the temple, and it doesn't really work. Sixty years later, Ezra shows up, and Ezra's like, okay, I know, we're going to have Bible reform. It's the temple to the Torah. And once we get the Torah in place, then it's all going to be better. And did it get any better? No. Because you can't legislate OST. OST for us is ongoing spiritual transformation. It's God wooing us and convicting us, and it's us repenting, and it's changing us from the inside out. You can't tell people you should repent, even though Ezra did. It just didn't work. So now here we are. Just a few years later, and now Nehemiah shows up. And that's where we're going to be. We're going to be in chapters 1 through 7, all the way up to about the Super Bowl. We're going to continue on looking at this man at this story. And so this is where we are. In verse 1, we meet our, our new hero. Remember, these are like failed hero stories. So we meet our new guy. Nehemiah, I like more than the other two, but he's going to have issues too. Don't worry, we'll get there by the end of the series. Chapter 1, verse 1, it says this, the words of Nehemiah. Nehemiah's name meant Yahweh is comforted. Remember, the Israelites are not comforted. They have their temple, they have their Torah, but their life stinks still. And so they're like, what next? What should we do? I know, maybe it's the walls. Let's go to that. So Nehemiah was an Israeli official that was working in the Persian government. I love this. We sang the song. The first song we sang today was Great Things. Think about this. Ezra, Nehemiah, and Zerubbabel, they got led by three kings. Remember what kings they represented? Where were they from? Persia. How crazy is this, that God uses kings that don't love him or trust him for his glory? Is that cool? 
Are you thinking about people in your life that are over you, like maybe your bosses or politicians or whatever that might be? You're like, what is going on? God uses all things for his glory, amen? Nothing is outside of his control or his leading. And so God's using these Persian kings. And so Nehemiah works in the Persian courts. He works for his boss named King Artaxerxes. And this is 13 years after where we left off two weeks ago in Ezra chapter 7. So Nehemiah, the son of Hakali, and I love these details. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year. That, that's another hyperlink. What I love about this, you can go back and find these dates. That's how we know it's 13 years later, because we have the dates of King Artaxerxes. And I was in Susa, the citadel. Now, Chislev was probably around November, so it's kind of cold. And I think we didn't plan our series to be in the same month at the same time. But that's where they're in November. It's cold. They're living at Susa. Susa is the winter house of the king. So in Ezra, we saw the summer house. Now he's living in the winter house. It must be a bummer deal being king, right? So he's got these homes, and Hanani shows up. He's one of his brothers, and he came with these other men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, what's going on? 42,000 Jews left the exile. They come back to Jerusalem. They have the temple. They have the Torah. I think on some level, Nehemiah is like, it's going good, right? Like, how's it working? And what did the brothers say? Here's what the brothers say. I asked them, and here was their report. They said to me, the remnant there of the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. There's this report of really desperation. Things are not good. I want to encourage you, when you ask someone, how are they doing? You know, sometimes I ask someone, and I know they got a promotion or something going on in their life, and I'm excited. I'm like, how are you doing? I'm expecting to hear good news. What happens then when they say, life's terrible? You're like, oh, cool. You should tell someone, right? Like, <laughs> we move so fast, sometimes we miss it. And so Nehemiah gets this bad report. It's this report of desperation. The walls of Jerusalem have been broken down. The gates are destroyed by fire. And Nehemiah's heart breaks. He hears this news and it literally breaks his heart. And he has to do something about it. Now, quick sidebar in verse 3 before we get to verse 4. I, I feel like I resonate with Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah's like, wait, they got the temple. They got the Torah. I know what it is. They need the gates to be built. They need the walls to be destroyed. Now, all three of these leaders, please hear my heart. I think these leaders have good intentions. And they really do want to make much of God and Yahweh and honor him and everything they say and they do. Remember, they're trying to build the city so the Messiah would come back. So let's be careful as we pick on these guys. Like, they're just trying to do what they think they're supposed to do to get Jesus to come back. But they don't really understand that it's not about doing great things for God. They miss that God's just already great. And so they're doing all these things, not illegitimately, but not necessarily because God commanded them to. And I think it's similar to this section of, of my life, maybe you've been here, where I'm like, I'm in a really busy season, but next month it will be better. Right? You ever said that before? If I get a job, then life will be better. If I, if I get a home, then life will be better. If I get a new boss, life will be better. If my life would just slow down, then life would be better. Has that ever happened to you? How's that slowing down thing working in California? We live in this if-then scenario, and let me just be very clear. People say, I'm going to get right with Jesus next year. I'm going to get right with Jesus when I have more time to serve, or when I have more money to give, or when I have more places to be. That's when I'm going to get right with Jesus. Please hear me. Those are lies from Satan. Satan would love for you to live in an if-then reality. Well, if only this happens, then I'll start to do this seriously. And I think on some level, Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, they live in that reality. Well, if we do this, then this will start to happen. They want the Messiah to come back. They think it's this equation that they can just manipulate, and if, then. And let me just be very, very clear. I don't think that's the case. Why? Because Zechariah tells them that, that even this new city, it's not going to have walls and gates the way that you think. That was the message last week in Zechariah 2, 4 through 5. Why? Because it's not about what they can do for God. It's about what they need from God, that they need a new heart. 
It's not about duty or obligation or doing the right things. It's about being the person that God created us to be, which is fully surrendered to him. With a clean heart, a new heart, a heart transplant is really what these people need. And so Nehemiah hears these words of desperation. We're going to parse that more in the weeks to come. In verse 4 it says this. Here's his response. He gets the report, and here's his response. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, and I wept, and I mourned for days. Have you ever had those feelings? Again, where there's something going on in your life, and you weep, and you mourn for days. You cry so much that you can't eat. You cry so hard that your stomach hurts. And that's what he's experiencing. He's looking at the sin of the people, and he is weeping and mourning for days. We saw it in Ezra 9. We'll see it again later in Nehemiah. That I think this is important, that as he's fasting and praying before the God of heaven, it's imperative. And this is why I think the author writes this. He says, look up. When we look out at the world, does anyone else get depressed or just me? Again, you look at Brad, there's so much joy in his life, but make no mistake, cancer stinks. We live in a broken, fallen world. And if you look at the news, you can be overwhelmed. And here's what Nehemiah says, don't look out, look up. It's imperative. It's when Jesus taught us how to pray, he says, our Father who art where? In heaven, I think this is a reference to God's sovereignty. He says, he looks up at the God in heaven. He says, God, you're greater than this rubbish that we're in the middle of. Church, don't miss this. We're all in the middle of some sort of rubbish. We call it pain, and pain, our definition is simply this, the gap between your present state and your desired state. We all have gaps in our life, in our marriage, in our jobs, in our health, in our wealth. There's these gaps, but God steps into our heartbreak, and so Nehemiah is in the middle of one of those gaps, and he does what I think we're supposed to do. He cries out to God. He says, God, what do you have for me in this? I trust that you're the God of heaven. I trust that you're greater than my heartbreak, but my heart is breaking, and I'm responding in desperation. And then he cries out and he prays, starting in verse 5. He says, oh, Lord, God of heaven, he just said it, Lord of heaven and earth, creator of all things, God, you are what? What does he say? Do you ever forget that sometimes in the midst of trials? Like, you really start to freak out, and you're like, oh, my gosh, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And God's like, dude. I'm God, and I'm pretty awesome, and I hold the world in my hands. Don't forget that I haven't left my throne. See, when we look up, part of what Nehemiah does, and he goes, oh my goodness, God hasn't left his throne. God is on the throne. He is awesome, and he keeps his covenant steadfast love. Now, again, lots of hyperlinks. Go back and read Exodus where God says, if you'll trust me, I've got you. I'll take care of you. That's the covenant that he gives to the Israelites and so we press on into verse 6. He says, love those who love him and keep his commands. In verse 6, here's what Nehemiah says. Let your ear be attentive. Let your eyes be open. You ever pray to God that way? God, are you listening? God, would you please hear me? Hear your servant that I now pray before you day and night of the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. Here's what verse 6 says. Verse 6 says we stink at verse 5. Verse 5 says, God says, if you trust me, we got this covenant, I got you no matter what. But what really happens? Well, we're just like the Israelites. We don't trust very well, do we? We don't believe that is better is better. And in fact, when we get the bad hand, whatever that means, we freak out and we actually start to think, well, this is bad news. And one of the lines at Vintage we use regularly, there is no bad news in the kingdom of God. Only news that God's using for his glory and our good. God still sits on his throne. And so in verse 6, he says this, wow, we've not been faithful. Now, I love this. Where has Nehemiah been the last however many years? Has he been with the remnant back in Jerusalem? Has he sinned in Jerusalem? No. He's off with King Artaxerxes. And I love this because sometimes, you ever see other people sin, right? And you're like, sinners. You realize you sinned when you said sinners, right? 
Like, aren't we good at being not good? And I love Nehemiah's response here. He sees their sin, and what does he say? He could say, those people are sinning. What does he say? We, me, I, and my father's house have sinned. And this whole sentence is very similar to Solomon when he's dedicating the temple. Go read 1 Kings. It's this beautiful text. Why does Solomon build the temple? Anybody remember why? Because David, his dad, was what? He was a sinner. And so Solomon said, it's not that Solomon wasn't a sinner, but that was one of the consequences of our sin because sin costs something. It takes joy away from us. It compromises our pursuit of God. And so in that context, Solomon says things that the temple dedication like, give, listen to your servants, use this space for your glory. And so Ezra and Nehemiah point us that way as well. Verse 7, he continues on. He says, we have acted very corruptly against you, God. We have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Now remember, that was Ezra's mission. So Ezra came back, the temple was built, and Ezra 60 years later was like, okay, we got the place, but we don't know the person, and so we've got to memorize scripture, we've got to stick to the Torah, we've got to memorize it and live it out, and he went back and he saw everybody sinning. And he's like, he created this divorce decree, which I don't think was given of God. I don't think it was God's plan. He, he fails as a leader, but Nehemiah, again, Zerubbabel failed, Ezra failed, but Nehemiah's going to be better, right? No. No, he's not, because he's man. Because he's not necessarily being led fully by the Spirit. And so in this sense, he says, look, we've blown it. We've acted corruptly. The, the law was given to protect and provide for us something good. And the reality is the Israelites rejected the law. They didn't honor the law. They twisted the law. They found loopholes in the law. And so what did the law do? Well, then the law started to reveal that they needed a Savior. The law was a gift from God. And it reveals their need to be saved. And so Nehemiah is experiencing that right now. He says, we have not kept the law or the commandments or the statutes or the rules. And so here's what I love, verses 5 through 7. Nehemiah goes, I'm a sinner. Church, that's really important that we recognize. One of the reasons I think Satan is taking ground in certain ways is that he, he convinces us that we're just okay. It's not that big of a deal. No, sin is a huge deal. It offends a holy and righteous God. And Nehemiah goes, oh my goodness, I stink. Church, don't be afraid of that. When we come to Jesus and confess our sin, does he go, oh, I'm so glad you finally realized that? Get away from me. When we confess to Jesus, he's like, yeah, I know. I already knew that. In fact, honestly, he knows the depth of our depravity way more than we do. But for some reason in this Facebook fake world, I think the facade world that we live in, we're afraid. Jesus is not afraid of your sin. He just wants you to see it. And then in that context, he wants you to see that he loves you through it. He loves you out of it. I love the way Tim Keller says, God loves you as you are where you are, but he loves you so much to not leave you there. He's going to come alongside us. He doesn't run away from us. And so verses 5 through 7, Nehemiah just says, we've blown it. I've blown it. This is my response in desperation. And then we get to verse 8, and I love this is important, because we have to deal with the depth of our depravity, but I don't think we can stay there too long, because Jesus comes down, he steps into our sin, and he rescues it out of it, amen? This is huge. And verse 8, that's what he says, God, remember that you commanded your servant Moses, if you're unfaithful, I'm going to scatter you amongst the people. That was Deuteronomy 4, well, guess what? They were unfaithful, and what does God do? He scatters. But I love this, because but God is not just in the New Testament. It's in the Old Testament, too. It's everywhere. But God intervenes in verse 9. But God says, but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though you are outcast, all scattered across the uttermost parts of the heaven, I will gather them. I think this is still being fulfilled today. I don't think God is done with Israel. I think that he's going to continue to bring his people back to Israel. 
But in this context, there was a prophecy that was given where he says, I will not leave you in exile, I will bring you back. And that's that 70 years. And I will bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. You want to know what breaks Nehemiah's heart? It's the glory of God. What breaks our heart? What are the things that cause us to weep? For Ezra and for Nehemiah, it really was the glory of God. And for Zerubbabel, it breaks their heart. And so Nehemiah cries out to God. He says, God, we've been unfaithful. But remember, you made a promise to us that if we would repent, if we get off the throne of our heart, you would call us back. Can we do that, God? That's what he says. Skipping forward then to verse 10, he says this. They are your servants. This is still that prayer. Your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Who does the work in this story? It's all God. It's not you and I at all. We are not saved because of what we've done, and this is the good news of the gospel of grace. We're saved because of what he's done for us. Now, he's referencing specifically, I think, the first exile. He's referencing Egypt. Remember what happens in Egypt? The Israelites lose their why, and they lose their way, and they go into captivity, and God's, God raises up who? Anybody remember who? Moses. He raised up Moses, and Moses goes back, and he comes to Pharaoh, and he says, let my people go. And how does Pharaoh respond? Not very well. Moses says, if you're not going to respond, then God's going to send what? He's going to send the plagues. And so this verse here, referencing the great power of God, that's what he's referencing. He's referencing the plagues. He says, God is powerful, and when we don't follow him, he will give opportunities for us to repent. Amen? That's what he says. There's this great power. Or how about this? The Israelites, they get out of the land of Egypt, the control of Pharaoh, but then what do they come? Right as they're running away, what do they hit? What sea? Red Sea. Does it not feel that way sometimes in your life? You're like, God, you open up one door just so I could run into a dead end? So I could run into a brick? And then what does God do with the Red Sea? He parts the Red Sea. It's these moments of our life when we can't move forward unless God actually moves us. Is that a good place to be? It's the best place to be. It's super discouraging because we're like, I can't do anything. And God's like, exactly. You can't do anything. And your heart breaks and you can feel paralyzed. Jesus says, no, no, no. I came to give you life and give you life abundantly. I have redeemed you. I have great power and I have this hand. It's the exodus. It's the hero of God. Verse 11. Oh, Lord. And this is how he closes his prayer. Oh, Lord, let your ear be attentive to the, to the prayer of your servant, me. This is about you. You're the hero. This is your power. Would you hear me? And the prayer of your servant who delights to fear your name. That's about your glory. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. So Nehemiah hears the report. His heart breaks, and he's like, I've got to do something about this. I've got to do something. I can't just sit around. Have you guys ever said that before when your heart breaks and you're like, you know what? Someone should do something about that. And God's like, wait, seriously? Someone? Like, like you? This is what we believe, vintage, that you can do it, that we can help, that God has given you a vantage point of perspective that none of the rest of us have. It's unique by who he made you to be and where he's placed you to be. And so here's what happens. Nehemiah heart breaks and he says, God, I got to do something about this. I got to step, I got to go to my king. And so he's praying and watching, but he's in a point of his life where he says, if you don't move God, I'm going to fail. This is one of my great fears for, for the church of America. When do we find ourselves in positions where if God doesn't move, we're going to fail? Because everything in our life, we try to build up insulation and security and comfort so that even if we fail, it's no big deal. But here's where Nehemiah, Nehemiah is, the, is a cupbearer to the king. That's what he says at the very end. He says, now I was cupbearer to the king. And part of why I love this book and why I'm going to go slowly through it is because of this. Nehemiah is not a pastor. 
We've created kind of the Church of America around pastors. I think that's why churches aren't growing, because they're not about Jesus, they're about humans. And in this context, humans fail. But in our context in America, how often do we actually put ourselves in positions that if God doesn't show up, we're going to flame out? And in this context for Nehemiah, he doesn't know if he's going to lose his job when he talks to his boss. He doesn't know if he's going to kill him if he talks to him. And so he goes to God, he says, God, would you please move to the heart of my boss? Why? Because I can't do this unless you want it done. Does that make sense? And so next week we're going to parse that more in chapter 2. But he says, would you give favor, would you give me mercy in the sight of my boss? Whenever that door opens, I'll know you want me to step through it, but I'm going to be tempted to, to kind of run the other way. And Nehemiah says, would you give me favor so that I can step boldly? He is desperate and dependent. He says, I can't do it, but I actually know that you can. Church, please hear me. Look for those opportunities in faith. Look for those opportunities that God is calling you into that you say, I can't do this, but that's the best place to be when you're fully desperate, when you're fully dependent, and God leads you somewhere. You say, yeah, but the, the river's closed. And God's like, exactly. Because when I part the Red Sea, who's going to get all the glory? Me. God. God says, I'm going to get all the glory because I'm the king. And so what are the implications for us today? I think there's a time. Here's the first one. Pray. Pray. We say at Vintage that prayer is the work. I loved it during first service. Right as I was coming up to this point, it was right at 938, and someone's alarm went off. I've asked you guys to set an alarm for 938. In your worship folders, there's a Pray Watch card. I want to encourage you to pull it out right now. And take a look at it, because I, I think some people are like, well, I don't even know what I'm praying for. What does that mean? Why do we set our alarms for 938? I've asked you as a church, set your alarm for 938. I don't even care if it goes off during first service, because it has now, multiple weeks in a row. It's okay. 938, the prayer alarm, comes from Matthew chapter 938, where Jesus says this. He says in 936, he says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are what? Few. It's really the only time I think I've ever really argued with Jesus, where I say, Jesus, I hope you're a liar. Like, not literally, I hope you're a liar. He's God, so he doesn't lie. But don't miss this. When he says the labors are few, who's he talking about? Us. He's talking about us. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. So would you pray? He doesn't say, would you go be a laborer? Notice this. He doesn't say, he's not trying to inspire us. He's saying, would you pray to the Lord of the harvest, which is who? Well, that's God. God's the one that saves. God's the one that sustains. God's the one that moves. He says, would you pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send kingdom laborers? He doesn't say you guys should go be evangelists. In fact, I actually hate that phrase, do evangelism. It makes me want to vomit in my stomach and soul. Do evangelism. Here's the reason why I hate it. You already are an evangelist. Evangelists just share what they care about. That's all an evangelist does. You might be an evangelist of your kid's soccer team. You might be an evangelist of the San Francisco 49ers. You might be an evangelist of, I don't know, but you're already an evangelist. You're already sharing what you care about. Here's what Jesus says. Pray to the Lord of harvest, not that he would create converts, but that he would send kingdom laborers. Because if you're a kingdom laborer, you're already a convert. Does that make sense? You're already in the harvest field. You already recognize that. And that's why I love the story of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is not a pastor. He works in government. He's an everyday saint. He's a kingdom laborer. He's an everyday missionary. And so here's the point. Wherever God has placed you, he's put people around you. People that have no interest in going to church. People that, that might entertain your invite at Christmas just because they want to be respectful. But really, they don't care about your God, but they do want to be happier tomorrow than they are today. And they're looking for that joy, I believe, in all the wrong places. So Jesus says, pray to the Lord of the harvest that he would send kingdom laborers. That was the prayer that I prayed when, when Jen and I would take preview trips up here every month back in 2013. We would walk the streets. We'd go to CrossFit. We'd go to Town Center, which already looked way different just six years ago. 
We would just pray and say, God, would you send kingdom laborers? This morning, you guys are an answer to prayer. But I'm inviting you to pray with me, to pray for the spaces and the places where God has put you because you're a sheriff, but you're first a kingdom laborer. Because you're an accountant, but actually, really, you're a treasurer of Christ. That's who you are. That's your identity. And so 938, we set our alarms to church to just pray and watch. And so I would encourage you, who are the people that God has put in your life? And start writing their names down. Maybe you're not a hard copy person because people have told me, well, I keep it in my phone. That's great. So do I. Some of the people on my list that I pray for, I don't even know their names. Like, it's the barista that has dark curly hair. I don't know her yet. Because I'm not saying do anything. I'm just saying pray for them. Pray that God would use you to change their eternity forever. Pray for an opportunity for them to see, because here's the question for us today. What makes your heart break? I don't know about you, but as a young man, like two or three years ago, I used to yell at the TV sometimes. You know what made my heart break sometimes? Watching sports. I tend to be a little too passionate about my sports team. Part of my OST is I don't yell at the TV anymore. I'm growing up, people. It's good. But what makes your heart break? And maybe you're like, my heart doesn't break for anything. Repent over that. Seriously. I think Satan's so good at keeping us so numb and so busy that our heart doesn't even break for the things that break his heart. But you know what breaks his heart? People that don't know him. People that don't trust him. People that that are going to spend an eternity away from him. And that you and I have the good news of the gospel and we're not doing anything with it. That breaks his heart. And so we pray, we say, God, break our heart for what breaks yours. Put us places. When we say, God, you should do something about this. And that's what I love about Chuck and Lori. They didn't say, man, what happened to us? Why did this happen to us? They said, God, what are you inviting me into? And they prayed and they watched and they stepped in and they engaged. What causes your heart to break? What causes God's heart to break? Go look at your prayer journal. If you kept track of all the things that you prayed about, maybe you don't have an actual prayer journal, that's fine. But if you actually did like an inventory on your prayer time with you and Jesus, if he answered all of those prayers, would that bless anybody other than you? If he answered all of your prayers, would it even change eternity? Or would it just change today? Church, this is where Jesus calls us to pray. And this is why I love Nehemiah. His heart breaks. Now, I wish someone would have asked him, why is your heart breaking? Well, because we need walls. Did you hear what Zechariah said? He said we don't need walls. Okay, maybe I'm off. But church, what breaks our heart, and are we even praying? So I want to invite you, set your alarms. I want to invite you to start to look everywhere you go. Where has God placed you to be the living proof of him, our loving God? And then watch. Watch for those opportunities. Now, when you watch for other opportunities, please remember, watch your own heart too. Because when Nehemiah hears the report, what's the first thing he does? He weeps, and he mourns, and he repents. We've used this phrase before, love the sinner, hate what? My sin. Not other sin. Honestly, there's enough stuff in my own heart that Jesus needs to deal with. Love the sinner, hate my sin. It starts with you. Where is your life actually become a great eclipse because the sin has entered your life? You're not praying. You're not watching. You're not stepping. Why? Because you've started to live just on this side of heaven. You haven't actually lived the way that God's called you to live, which is a true kingdom laborer. You've gotten sucked in to El Dorado Hills. So we pray and we watch. And when we watch, I think we see the glory of God. I think we see the depth of our depravity. We're not afraid of the depth of our depravity. We're like, we repent over it. It disgusts us, but God redeems it and rescues us out of it. And so when we see someone at Starbucks or on our baseball team or our neighborhood, and they're like, I don't get it. Your son's got this. Your family's got this. This has that. Why is your joy not compromised? I would be devastated. And we say, well, because Jesus. Because of who he is, and he's the father of life that never changes due to variation or shadow due to change. Because he sits on the throne of his heart, 
Because he sits on the throne above, he's using all things. And see, when we engage with our prey, watch this, you know what starts to happen? Is we start to see the stories that are there to share. I think otherwise we miss them. If we don't pray and watch, we will never step because we'll never actually see where he's calling us to step. Next week, we're going to tell some stories of baptism about men and women that have seen the glory of God reach down to the pit of their sin and pull them out. And maybe that's you. I would encourage you, share that with your life group leader. Put that on your Connect card. We're going to celebrate. We're going to tell those stories of men and women who have been transformed by Christ. It's the best story that we can tell. That we were dead in our sin, but God made us alive in him. Is that good news? And that's the story that we tell where we get to see the glory of God. We get to share the glory of God. And finally, we step. We pray, we watch, and we step. One of my fears is that sometimes we step and we've never prayed or watched. Maybe that's what's going on with Ezra and Nehemiah. Maybe that's what Zerubbabel's doing. They're like, well, we should just go. Let's just go. Don't ever get ahead of God, please. God is working on his timeline and his way and his places. But church, don't forget to pray and to watch and to step. And when we step, when we come to the altar, here's what we see. God sees us in our brokenness and he redeems us and he reconciles us. He brings us back home. Here's what I love about my Jesus. No matter how far I've run from him, do you recognize that he's faster than you? Like, like you're running away, and maybe today, maybe it's the first step for you. You're just coming back to church for the first time. Please hear this. God never left you. He is for you. And he will not depart from you. He will walk with you and rescue you, and then he will send you back into that same place that tried to suck you away from him, and he will say, now you go be the missionary. You go be the person that as your heart breaks, that you make a difference in their life for his glory and for their good. Guys, God is greater than our heartbreak. He meets us in it. Emmanuel, the Lord, came to us. That he who knew no sin became my sin so he could rescue us from it and then send us back to it. And right now there's some teachers here. I I see you. Thank you for being a teacher. There's some accountants. Thank you for being an accountant. Firefighters. Thank you for being a firefighter. I love firefighters because in our world, right, when, when you run out of the burning building, you're just smart, right, because it's burning and you don't want to die. But what do heroes do? What do firefighters do? They run into it. That's what Jesus did for you and me. He ran into our mess and he redeemed us and took us out of it. And then he sent us back and said, nothing can touch you. No height, nor depth, nor any other creative thing. No sin, no cancer. Nothing can touch you because I have saved you and I have rescued you and I have redeemed you. Father God, we praise you. We thank you that as we come to the altar this morning that we come received fully by your glory. Not because of what we've done, because we are broken vessels. We have offended you as holy and righteous God, but God, you've rescued and redeemed us from that great offense. And you, Jesus, wore that sin and you buried it and you gave us new life. And so we, like Nehemiah, we repent when we put the wrong things on the throne of our heart. We repent for the fact that our heart doesn't break like it should. That we don't weep often over our sin or over the sin of our friends, but instead, Jesus, we ask you to rescue and to redeem even that because you are greater than our heartbreak. Church, through these words.